Welcome to the Bizarro Cast. Today's episode for April 20th, 2012, is Hamardia, A Tale of Sister Merciless by Garrett Cook. Welcome again to another show. This is your narrator and editor, Chris Boyle. Um, the story we're doing today is a pretty cool one. It is Hamardia, A Tale of Sister Merciless, as I just mentioned. This is one from a series that Garrett Cook does. It's about a chainsaw-wielding nun who's on a mission to kill gods. Uh, gods who are pretty much dicks, if you get into the stories at all. It's really cool. This is a bit of a long one, longer than uh, the other ones that we've done, uh, longer than most of the ones we're probably going to do, too. But this was a really cool story, and I wanted to run it pretty bad, so uh, I went ahead and ran it. Alright, we have something special this week. This is the first time that we've done it, but if people like this, then we'll keep on doing it. This week, it is Bizarro News. This week on Bizarro News, we have a story from my locale of Southern California. It ties right into the story we're doing. Apparently, around March 15th, a Los Angeles woman was found in her bedroom, dead, with a suicide note. And that's pretty bad by itself, but apparently the weapon that she used to kill herself was a chainsaw. 47-year-old Valerie Nash, who was found by her sister, who she was a roommate with, uh, had used the chainsaw apparently to cut her own throat, or something along those lines. Uh, according to LAPD officer, oh, and this is coming from the Huffington Post, by the way. According to LAPD officer Norma Eisman, Eisman, Eisenman, uh, Nora Eisenman, uh, the two sisters share an apartment. The door to the victim's room was jammed a little, and the sister was able to see her on the bed with the chainsaw next to her. Uh, they haven't found a motive for this, but. They say that with the cases with unusual means tend to be extremely violent. Uh, that's according to suicide expert and State University of New York professor Dr. Michael Myers. Apparently, people named Michael Myers like to go into extreme professions, whether it's comedy or chainsaw suicides or just hacking people up. Though Myers did not have knowledge of the woman's history, he said that suicide victims who pick such violent methods often fall into two categories. Someone who made such a choice could have been extremely ill, maybe even psychotic, he told the Huffington Post. The choice could have been the result of command hallucinations, where patients hear a voice that tells them what to do and how. This is pretty weird stuff, folks, so... If anyone out there hears a voice telling them that this week's story means that they need to pick up a chainsaw and do something other than cut trees, maybe you need to second-guess that. And on that note, let's move on to this week's story. Garrett Cook is an author of Bizarro Fiction and the winner of the first annual Ultimate Bizarro Showdown. He has three exciting pulp novellas in print, soon to be four. Check out his books paintings and stories at chainsarnoir.wordpress.com Hamardia, A Tale of Sister Merciless by Garrett Cook Once a nun, devoted to the worship of the vampire goddess Milk of Creation, Sister Merciless was forced by the goddess to take up and permanently bind herself 
to the mystic god-killing chainsaw gut-render, who in its hunger forced her to kill the only man she ever loved. As he lay dead at her feet, she saw the wickedness of the goddess she had given her life and soul to, slew the sisters, and renounced the worship of milk of creation, though she would forever wear the sisterhood's ceremonial garb as a reminder of the things she had endured. With only gut-render and her faithful giant scorpion steed, Sister Merciless fights against the tyranny of the gods themselves, beings that hold a wicked chokehold on her world. Jojo's Barroom The piano man punishes the keys. They won't open the way. It's the gods, they say, that close doors and open windows. The closed doors, the locked windows, the gates of heaven will not be unlocked by them keys. She'll not come back through them. His fingers are starting to go numb. His knuckles crack. His fingertips snap back. He bites his tongue instead of screaming out. He has no qualms about playing over Sadie, but damned if he will utter a word while she's at the mic, let alone scream out. He's a professional, but he hates the damn piano right now for the little it's given him in life. He hates his damned hands, empty after 30 years of doing what he does where he does it. He doesn't just play over Sadie. He plays over the screams of Jackie Rose, dumped out of his wheelchair over the bridge above the bar. Plays over the splat and the thud that would at the very least have gotten somebody to step outside and take a look. Plays over the weeping of the butcher next door and the sound of a gunshot, presaging the transformation of a call girl into ground chuck because she didn't understand that his dead wife liked to watch. Plays over the growling swastika tattooed werebears in the alley, finishing up the poor unfortunate girl whose DNA offended their Aryan muzzles with the stink of parter of the seas. Tongueless devotees of the choir of joys, desperate fans of the music of the man called Zan smile blissfully. There's black magic in this song. They don't know for sure whose gods it belongs to, but theirs would approve of this powerful noise. A waitress with circles under her eyes that would be the envy of a giant panda bear brings them a couple more beers. A minotaur at the next table snorts and cries. Sadie has stopped singing. His fingers finally broken and unusable, the piano man plays with his face. Jojo the bartender washes a handful of aspirin down with the last bottle of whiskey that he can't afford for a place. A tear rolls down the barmaid's face. Is he, she asks, sobbing a little. Somehow Jojo hears her. Yeah, says Jojo. He's been chosen. We'll wait till he knocks himself out and throw him out on the curb. Sadie has just stepped out of her dressing room, where she's gone to idly retreat from the noise and take a couple pills. Somehow, even over the din, she's heard what Jojo said. You can't be serious. He's the best fucking piano player we've ever had. You hear that music? He's been chosen. We don't want that shit in here. He plays for another hour, face bloodied, nose broken, before he collapses. 
Jojo motions to the crying Minotaur for a little help, and the Minotaur gets up and complies. They toss him out onto the curb and ask every god they can think of to make sure he doesn't get up and come back in. You know what I'm called. Sister Merciless, who wars with all the crooked gods, steps off the giant scorpion, pets him on the head. Stay here, she tells him. I'll bring you back something to eat. It wags its stinger like the big rambunctious puppy it is. She kicks down the funeral home's door, cutting a frightening figure. Six foot eight in her red high-heeled boots, clad only in the red leather whipple and chainmail bikini bottom required by the order she left behind a few years back. In her right hand, the sacred crimson chainsaw gut render. The pinstripe file-teeth gangsters within look away from the ghoulish open casket repast they're about to enjoy, pull out their tommy guns. Sister Merciless's reputation precedes her. They're also pretty sure that rat Jackie Rose caved in and told her where to find the temple. They're right. It's a shame Sal and Vinny didn't dispose of him a few hours earlier. Many bullets are flying in all directions, but none of them seem to touch her. Trained in combat by blood-bathing sisters at the convent of Milk of Creation, she knows much about pain and bloodletting. She revs the chainsaw, feeds it the blood and guts and essence it craves, turns whole men into limbless torsos, surprises a few of the bastards by cutting the muzzles off their guns. A few stray bullets do actually touch her, but as the chainsaw drinks blood, the wounds seal up. A blur of death and stink and fluid, and suddenly, there's only one man left, and he's missing both legs and one arm. Go on, he hisses. Finish me off. The starving count will give me all the flesh I crave in death. She shakes her head. I'm not just here to desanctify your temple, though I will do that. I need information. He spits at her. So go to the library, bitch. She puts down the chainsaw, picks up his severed arm, smacks him in the face with it, beats him over the head. Right now, I'm going easy on you. I've left you one hand, and I will leave you a knife with which to slit your own throat, if you're cooperative. If you're not cooperative, I will fuck you up the ass with your own severed arm until you die. You know what I'm called, and I'm certain you don't want to see why. He talks. He spills everything she needs to know. But it's too late. Heart, heart, heart. The room is just a bed with four blue walls. There's not a door, but there is a stool. The piano man knows where he is. He's someplace that doesn't exist. A man is sitting on the stool. The man's skin is aquamarine. His suit is midnight blue. His fedora and his sunglasses are midnight blue as well. His guitar is aquamarine. The exact same shade as his skin. You know where you are? Asked the aquamarine man. 
Yeah, the piano man says. I know. The aquamarine man strum his guitar. The piano man feels like someone is punching him in the gut from inside. Feels his fingers break, repair themselves, break again, heal. His broken nose moves to the left side of his face, the right, dancing to the music. He screams till he's hoarse. He spits blood. He spits out his heart, which flies across the room, splattering against the wall. He winces, twitches. His eyes pop out from their sockets, roll around on the floor. The aquamarine man strums his guitar. It radiates waves of thick, verdant light. Strands of blue spread out and intermingle, twist, roll, transform from helix into spiral. The spiral becomes a circle. The circle becomes a heart. A heart the color of the aquamarine man. A heart the color of the blue guitar. The heart floats over the piano man. His chest opens and the heart drops in. In the first moments of life, with his new heart, he feels nothing. It is a relief. Better than the hatred for his hands, and the absence of his dead wife, and the awful job at the bar. Nothing isn't so bad. Eyeballs on the floor, heart gone, but at least he feels nothing. Tears drip from his empty eye sockets. He knows that this nothing will not last. The crying presage is this. He feels again. He fucking hates it. But he feels again. Hatred for the hands. Hatred for the job. Broken nose. Broken heart. The image of her lost forever dances around his sockets. His skin takes on a bluish tinge. An inescapable blue suit coils around him. A midnight blue fedora nails itself to his head. Black sunglasses appear above the sockets. Go forth, my man, says the aquamarine man to the piano man. Do the work of tragedy. Even chainsaws have their limits. The scorpion waits a block away. She does not rev up gut render or kick down the door. She knows how to be subtle when she needs to be but she has seldom had need for it. She does not trust the information she got about the place's security. There's no way the bishop would have his mansion protected by just one guard. She waits for the fat, pinstripe-suited cannibal at the door to turn his back to her, draws the cookery from her boot and the gladius from the sheath at her side, stabs him in the back, slices his throat, goes down quickly, doesn't even have time to scream. Though she's doing this quietly, she feels no need to conceal this body. She takes the card key from his pocket, opens the front door, enters, listens for activity. She's alone. The gangster wasn't lying. No guards are posted inside. She's alone to enjoy the tapestries, paintings, carvings that adorn the walls of this opulent but empty mansion. Ogres devouring children, cows chewing human limbs, Pinstriped Tommy Gunners in heroic poses, heads of victims in hand, cauldrons of naked women smiling as they boil alive. The ideals of deities like Thunder of Glory are simple to understand. The God of Supremacy, White Perfection, and Making Might Right 
Multitudes of tattooed young shitheads got that one. Milk of creation, the goddess of blood is nourishment. Perhaps a little more complicated, but simple enough. The starving count is different from the others somehow. Nuances lost to outsiders. It will of course not matter when her and Gutrender find the place where the god has hidden himself and rip him to shreds, stealing his life force. It matters somewhat right now. She thought as she dismembered all those gangsters that she knew what she was killing. It's off-putting to be left alone to contemplate the mysteries of a cannibal monster god. She's not alone for long, though. Something massive stomps through the hall, lets out a bird-like shriek. It must weigh about half a ton. Massive though it is, it doesn't take long for it to catch up to her. Sister Merciless has seen a lot since she left the abbey behind, but nothing like this. A great stinking fork-tailed lizard reveals itself. No wonder the bishop didn't feel like he needed a large complement of security guards. It might be a dragon with veal for flesh, or just a dragon-shaped mound of veal. Either way, the flesh is tender veal, its head is a cattle skull. It ominously rears up to a height of 12 feet with a meaty 30-foot wingspan. The bastard didn't tell her about this. She prepares to sheathe the smaller blades and draw a gut render, but the chainsaw lets out a growl of protest in her head. It wants fresh meat, organs, blood. It will not partake of this aberration. The cattle skull dragon spits hot grease. She leaps out of the way, takes a chunk out of its wings with the cookery. It rakes its claws across her chest. Big gash, but she's used to it. Strikes back, thrusts the gladius into it, a spray of hot fat, burns her shoulders. It claws her side, wraps her legs in its tail, drags her closer. A nimble slash of the cookery, a second stab with the gladius, a grease burn on her left breast. She regrets her vow to always mock the habit of the sisterhood. More claw marks. Gladius cuts into the tail, she strikes the skull face with the flat of the cookery. It lets go of her legs, stumbles back. She closes in, stabs it in the chest, backs off to avoid the spray of fat. It lunges toward her, opening its cattle-skulled mouth to bite with the blunt, skeletal herbivore's teeth. As it closes in, she punches it in the snout, sending shards of bone flying. Uppercuts it with her left hand, grabs the snout, pries it open, dislocating the dragon's mandible. It screeches in pain. Takes the head in both their hands, twists. The nerves connecting the head to the dragon's meaty neck snap. It falls to the ground with a loud thump. Sizzling, bleeding, slashed up. She lives. And she will find the man she came here for. A faithless man, he leaves. The blue-skinned piano man sits down at his instrument. He's left, but he hasn't. As his bloody blue fingers touch the keys, they change into the sad, sea-foamy color of his flesh. Jojo the bartender seems to remember putting him out on the curb dead, hoping he wouldn't find his way back home. But that has to be wrong. Couldn't have happened. If it had, then why would the piano man be seated at the piano? Sadie seems to remember grieving for him, but she couldn't have lost him if he's seated there at the piano. The black circle barmaid is scared again. She knows that something bad has come to JoJo's. 
She doesn't know what until he plays. The bartender's memory is clouded, but hers is clear. He was taken by the blue guitar and brought right back. Hello, Murray, says the butcher's wife next door. This has got to stop. It's a miracle, says the butcher. You've come back to me. The corpse does not move. Her breast does not rise. Her eyes do not open. Her lips don't even move. She's not alive, but she speaks. I ain't here and I'm never coming back. Nobody's ever going to love you again, Murray, because you're a fucking creep. He strokes her hair. Charlotte, how could you say that? You're a fucking creep. You kill whores and feed them to people. You're worse than those starving count guys. At least they got a reason. And it ain't that they're crazy. In his anger, he loads the shotgun. Gonna kill yourself, Murray? Why even bother? At this point, you're worse than dead, Murray. You're... He blows away the final vestiges of the bony face of the only woman he ever loved. He blows away the closest thing to meaningful company in his life. He blows away the closest thing to meaning in his life. He's alone in his butcher's shop with hooker meat and a cadaver that has lost meaning. Only that and the sad, horrible pounding of the piano at the bar next door. Many people in this position would kill themselves. He does not. He knows that his wife is right and the gesture would be meaningless. Not so to the valiant werebears that have been chosen by thunder of glory to purge the undesirable. The music is the anthem of hundreds of nations, hundreds of polluted bloodlines that their best efforts could not rid the earth of. There can be no majority that is not outnumbered by the other. Thunder of Glory would never admit this. Thunder of Glory tells his soldiers that if their hate is strong, then someday the undesirables will vanish. So many anthems, so many different tongues to offend the ear. The day is lost. There's only one choice. Thunder of Glory has granted the werebear sharp claws and mighty strength. They use it. They do what bears do and what they've done to so many undesirables and heretics. They rend and tear with their sharp claws, open up their stomachs, pull out long ropes of intestine, like dishonored samurai or Roman soldiers. They take their lives, depriving the rabble of its satisfaction. Pools of man-guts, bear-guts at their feet are their eternal gratitude for all they've been given. Thunder of Glory understands. He chose his champions well. An expressionless black circle barmaid is on her hands and knees, letting the Minotaur have his way with her. He's gentle, realizing that he'll never find a woman like this again. Who could love a deformed beast like him? Lots of women made time with Minotaurs, but few with a Minotaur so hideous as himself. The barmaid understands that there is no freedom from this place, and all that she could do is experience it as vigorously as she can. It's not enough to make up from the lack of stimulation. She's endured at the dead-end job. His girth and passion might kill her, but she sees no alternatives. Every note kills an alternative. Jojo the bartender starts drinking with no intention of stopping. He sees that if he stops drinking, he'll sober up. He'll think about how he disapproves of his lot in life. He'll think about how many lives are ruined by drink and how he's chosen to make his living dispensing it. There's something lightly celebratory 
even in the tragedy, in the stake-thick blues. He drinks and drinks, not even thinking it strange that the tongueless disciples of the choir of joys leave tips and walk out, uncomfortable with the sane but sad strains of the piano. In about an hour, Jojo will be dead of alcohol poisoning. Sadie cannot find the words. He isn't playing any songs she knows, and even if she knew them, there was no way she could call forth such a deep reservoir of feeling as this music requires. It's such beautiful music. Her vocal range is small. She hides it with breathiness and flirting and banter. She can't hide it from herself. She doesn't feel very much, can't sing very much, was not a match for the piano man. She wishes she had lovely blue-green skin and stylish shades, but she never could. She retreats to the dressing room, takes all of her pills, thinking she can muster neither the joy or sorrow to be great. She lets loose, sings a rendition of Gloomy Sunday that proves everything she believes about herself wrong, regardless of how true it might have been. The piano man's mind is mostly blank. He can think only of playing, and spreading the blues and of the future. He knows at the core of his being that a woman is coming, a woman with a weapon that can slaughter the gods themselves and drink their souls, a weapon made especially for this sinister purpose. He knows that she is torn between begging for help and killing the blue guitar dead. He knows that he need only play the blues, and the situation will be what it must. All things will be what they must. Blues is destiny. In a bar full of corpses, a weeping minotaur fucks to the music of a blue pianist. Soup of the evening. Beautiful soup. The bishop sits at a little table. A large print. A woodcut depicting the starving count, ravenous. Scraps of flesh on his face hangs overhead. She had expected the bishop to be a big fat slob, considering the meat-packing interest and cannibalistic habits of the adherents of the starving count. But this man is borderline skeletal. Ironic that there is no meat on the bones of a high meat priest. He wears a fine black suit and a mitre. Move and I'll kill you, she warns the bishop. I don't plan on moving, he says. This chair is comfortable, and my manservant is bringing me a bowl of soup. I've got no problem with killing a holy man. You're injured. I'll be fine. Of course. The gut render will fix it. You know who I am? Who wouldn't? A tuxedoed man brings the bishop a bowl of soup, walks out without so much as acknowledging Sister Merciless. She's injured, worried, knows that she can't take on a building full of thugs right now. If you would like, says the bishop, I could get you a bowl. Sister Merciless laughs. I know the church. I know what's in there. The bishop sips the broth off the spoon. I don't think you do. Widows, orphans, 
guys that wouldn't pay their protection money. The bishop scowls. For someone who carries a weapon that can cut the guards, you are deeply ignorant, sister. This soup was my mother. She reaches for the gut render, stops herself. She needs him alive, if only for a few minutes more. You're disgusting, she says, a scratch. Her words will draw no blood. And you are lacking in perspective. My mother loved me and I loved her deeply. Nothing I could do for her would be anywhere near as meaningful as this gesture. Nothing she could for me would be as meaningful as this gesture. As one who killed the man she loved, you should understand this. Mon jumps back to the abbey and the master of arms, back to the reason she kept the wimple and saw, and not the goddess sparring, laughing, kisses, cuts, bruises, violent passions, dalliance in the reliquary, goddess in her moving towards the chest, the resting place, the crimson saw, gift of milk of creation resting, sleeping in there. Goddess says, take it. Saw says, give me his blood. Listens to milk of creation, listens to gut render. Drowns out the protest of her love. Quit it. She grabs the bishop by the throat. The bishop speaks out of the second mouth that appears on his forehead. The starving count was annoyed that you wouldn't taste the soup. He favors you. All the gods favor you, sister. You've done so much to please them. She draws the cookery, presses it against his belly. The forehead mouth smiles. Will you keep your promise, sister? There is so much good meat waiting for me on the other side. What's waiting for you there? She lets go of him. In spite of herself, she remembers the words of the abbess about not showing pain, about not losing composure. During the tests, Novices that screamed would have their souls fed to the hungering. The abbess would bathe in their blood. She would always hate the abbey. She will always hate milk of creation. She hates this man and wishes to kill him, but cannot until she gets what she needs. The bishop immediately returns to his soup, bites down on something crunchy, chews it noisily, joyously, when he finally swallows, he closes his eyes, lets out a heavy sigh. She does not interrupt him. She no longer feels as though she is the more powerful one in this situation. She's right. You have no idea what you're missing out on, says the bishop. The starving count, trapped in a tower by political enemies, ate his four children. They shine with heavenly light as they offer themselves up to him. They nourished him with their love. Is that not what love is for, to nourish? And when he died, he was rewarded with the flesh of the man that persecuted him and left him in the tower to starve. There is something beautiful about a man forced to nourish his enemy, a man that is forced to love him. The starving count was born in an act of love and spread that love. The ignorant 
think we're nothing but gangsters, killers and thieves and racketeers, but ours is a beautiful and virtuous mission. He favors you. He can liberate you from this. All you have to do is find something to love and devour it. No sacrifice could be more noble. Does everybody a favor? Please, try some of my mother. She has no choice but to play his game. She nods. He gives her the spoon. There's nothing on there but a taste of the mother broth. She sips it, throws up. The bishop laughs through both mouths. C means nothing to you. You reject it. It's about love and sacrifice, not about gluttony and greed. Might be your family, might be your mistress, might be your best men, but there's got to be love in it. I know what you want to know. You're going about this all wrong. Just tell me what I came here to find out. The bishop shrugs. Suit yourself. But the blue guitar won't take away what he's brought, won't liberate you from tragedy. Nobody ever comes back from St. James Infirmary healed. That's not your concern. Yes, says the bishop, slurping down the last of the bowl. I suppose it isn't. The blue guitar claimed a piano player. When tragedy takes someone, they come back home and ruin everything. They spread the gospel, play the blues. He was taken from JoJo's under the bridge. He's gone back there. She revs the gut render. Both the bishop's faces smile again. Thank you. No, thank you, she says. Gut render cuts through him eating sloppily, filling the holes and smoothing out the burns of her body. It does not care about acts of love or sacrifice. It does not care about freedom from pain. It's hungry. It eats. She's hurt. She heals. But she doesn't. This is why she must reach St. James Infirmary. Bleeding for Catharsis she didn't think it was possible for a scorpion to weep. It's happening, though. The giant scorpion is crying. It's only her experiences at the Abbey that stop her from falling to her knees in despair. The night has turned greenish. There's cutting music in the air. There's screaming coming from the butcher shop next to the bar. There's only music at the bar. Soft grunts and music. She momentarily wishes she had someone to pray to. The thought repulses her. She's beyond that. Sister Merciless hunts the gods and brings them to task. She does not need their help to do this. She walks to the bar with the intention of doing it one more time. Grief is going to bleed. Tragedy is going to beg for mercy. Black sunglasses on a bullface. A minotaur in a dark blue suit 
pulls out of a dead barmaid he's been fucking, lets out a pained bull bellow. It charges toward the door, snorting discontent. As usual, Sister Merciless is quick enough to dodge incoming horns. It too just barely dodges disaster, stopping just sort of embedding its horns in the wall. Sister Merciless starts up gut render. Though it has issues with veal, a nice juicy steak appeals to the weapon. Get out of here, she calls to the blues minotaur. I'm here to see the piano man. The blues minotaur faces her, raises its big furry fist, one flecked with aquamarine, and delivers a hammer blow to her skull. Dazed by the strike, unsettled by the blues, she somehow misses the minotaur, pays for it with a rib and a couple of bones in her foot. Stamped upon by a powerful hoof, gut render bites into the beast's side in response, knitting the foot bone as it starts to snack on the blues-ridden man bull. I've got the blues, it roars, fist cracking against her severe but beautiful face. The monster utterly unfazed by the depth of Gutrender's cuts. Teeth grinding down meat. Saw bites him. Fist snaps bone. Gutrender fixes them as it eats. Blood and fur fly. Music taunts and tortures. It will always be like this. It will always be ugly and hurt. Fists and blood and bone. And the incessant whirring of the ravenous sacred weapon. The punches come less frequently less impact. Gutrender needs not work as hard to fix her body or to ravage the minotaurs. It is not long before the minotaur hits the floor, finished, but there's no sense of triumph. I didn't want to kill him, she tells the piano man. He doesn't listen. Doesn't so much as acknowledge her. He batters the keys, births more music and despair. Hurtful as it was, truthful as it was, it had not even begun to hurt her. The piano produces a palpable blue-green light, like that of the guitar it channels. The music light is tangible, cold, and angry. It begins to take shape. Hundreds of sea-green hands reach out for her, yanking on her, fondling her breast, punching her in the stomach, the face, the ribs, blue claws scratching at her thighs. She brings gut-render to bear against every arm she can desperately trying to cut off the groping and the beating, the destruction of her body, rape of psyche by the transformative powers of trauma. Piranhas of sound swim through the air on a sea of blues, on a sea of phantom blue hands, sinking little blue teeth into near-nude flesh. The piano man does not rise from his seat. Stop! I only want to know how to get to St. James Infirmary. I want help. I want to heal my heart. Gutrender ingests the phantom arms, not taking in any of what it needs to repair her injuries. The piranhas gash and gnaw. Blood spills. Bone is exposed. Fingers twist her nipples, sneak under the chainmail bikini, work themselves inside her. Sorrow seeking to punish with pleasure harkens back to the tests, the abbess's digits seeking to elicit the fatal scream that promises her to the hungering. It was only milk of creation giving her resolve that let her endure that. 
the help of the hated goddess had made her strong and would never make her strong again. She has only her own strength, sufficient strength to wield the saw and the knives and to shatter bones and take the heads of her enemies. Strength that is meaningless as sorrow has its way with her. Devil! She screams at him. I have business with the blue guitar. Release me. Fingers still violating. Prawn is still biting as she struggles, trying to walk ahead through the blues. There are too many hands. Schools of piranhas are tearing her apart. She's fought through a great many enemies in her crusade against the unjust gods, but she has kept going with wounds that are not merely impossible to survive for many, wounds that would be impossible to even imagine. The blues reach into the consciousness of the relic, reminded of the words of the bishop. Ask if it has known love like that. Fan the flames of its hunger. The gut render growls, flies out of her hand, starts chomping down on her guts with rapidly spitting metal. A rain of blood splatter, lingering bits of soul soaked up. Physical, mental, spiritual energy vanishes into the hunger. Physical, mental, spiritual energy vanishes into the hungry relic. Betrayal, blues, nothing to eat in the arms. No real substance to the piranhas. It takes her instead. She begs it to stop. Tries to remind it that there will be god flesh for it to eat. It will not listen. It's hungry and mad. The hunger that killed the master of arms, the only man she'd ever loved, takes her. Stretch out on a long white table, eyes open to a room with nothing in it before blue walls. A man like the piano man is seated on a stool strumming an aquamarine guitar. She knows where she is. She's someplace that does not exist. Blood and viscera dripping out of her body. Lots of skin missing. Face stained with tears. She should not be alive. Streaks of blue-green, knitting the wounds, cold streaks. The cuts seal up, but they hurt worse. The skin where the piranhas opened her up is back. Her heart, gray and withered, struggling, lies on the floor. She does not expect the aquamarine man to pay her any attention, since she had gotten none from the blues man. But he looks at her. You came here to make me heal this, didn't you? Tried to find this place so you could take your fancy weapon and cut me till I do as you say? I can fix you all right. I can free you from your pain. I won't. That device of yours could kill me dead for sure, free a lot of people from misery they don't deserve. Not you, but a lot of people anyhow. He picks up the heart, the sorrowful, struggling heart off the floor, produces a lit cigarette from thin air, puts it out on the heart, leaving a burn that she will feel forever, an inescapable feeling of failure and the memory of the relic's betrayal. Please, she begs. Heal me, fix my heart. I'll leave you alone forever. Eyes open again. Got render by her side. The weapon is not contrite, and she will not live without it. Wounds healed. Heart still heavy. Soul weighed down by the gravity of lessons learned. 
The scorpion's claw knocks on the side of her head to see if she's awake. She knows from the cigarette burn on her heart that this is the closest thing she will ever have to being loved again. She could search the wide world over. Well, this week's story was definitely pretty intense. It was a bit of a longer one, like I've said before, and like I'm sure you're already aware. Not the longest story that's ever been podcasted. Uh, Podcastle does those giant episodes, which I really like, because I usually listen to these things while I'm supposed to be at work. But this one was definitely a little bit longer than the ones we usually run. And more than that, it was a pretty intense story. Uh, the subject matter, the uh, the language that was used, not just vulgarity, but the uh, the pacing of it. It was a very intense story to listen to, uh, an intense story for me to read at least. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. This story brings to mind a lot of things. It seems to me that in a quest, we tend to leave behind a lot. We tend to sacrifice a lot of ourselves. This is something that I experienced in my quest. Uh, I don't know, to be a writer, to, you know, be successful in the world. And I think all of us can sympathize with this. Now, most of us aren't lugging around a God-killing chainsaw, but sometimes, I don't know, it can feel that way. I hope everyone enjoyed this week's story as much as I did. Remember, everything at the Bizarro Cast is protected under a Creative Commons license, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, which means that you can share it, but don't change it. And don't try to sell it or profit off it. Music is thanks to Ducket and can be found at Ducket at ccmixer.com. Make sure to tune in two weeks from now when we come out with a new episode. Um, until then, everyone, stay bizarre.